0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I am very excited about today's show, in part because it is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, Studying Mandarin. Now, you would think that studying Mandarin, particularly for Africa, is a rather unexceptional issue. Uh, after all, China now is the largest trading partner for Africa. In most countries, that's the case. Uh, but yet, it remains actually a rather controversial issue. And In fact, Kobus, um in our most recent Africa-China QA, if you're not familiar with that, everybody, we've launched this new question and answer column called Africa-China.info. And uh, you can go check it out on that website where, you know, we get emails from people All over, every week, 5 to 10, asking us questions about China-Africa relations. And this week, Cobus, the topic was studying Chinese. Tell us a little bit about that question, because it's going to provide an excellent segue into our guest discussion today.
1: Yes, the reader asked us this very basic question. why do Africans need to learn Chinese when Chinese are not learning African languages? Um, which you know is, is, is strikes one as a kind of a strange question, but it's a question that has come up a lot. So like it, it really defined the debate around Mandarin teaching in South Africa. And just to recap for people, Mandarin Mandarin became an option um, to be offered in South African schools, secondary schools. Um, the idea was that that if if there were if there are um, interest in the school, you know, kind of they, they can apply to have it offered in the school. And that became super controversial in South Africa. And it became a big, big conversation about South Africa's connection with China and the, the rising role of China in South Africa. So this issue of why, why Africans should learn Chinese and whether it's fair to expect Africans to learn Chinese has unexpectedly taken on a political role. And
0: I guess what surprises me a little bit is every time we run a story on this subject, whether we post it on our Facebook page or we do a Q&A like what you've done, so many of the comments are, well, you know, South Africans or Mozambicans or Zimbabweans need to learn their own language first before they study Chinese. So therefore, Chinese isn't important for them. And that's a lot of the comments. So that's why we searched out into the universe to find uh, a, a Chinese-speaking Uh, kind of member of the South African community to kind of get his perspective on it. And Patrick Aceh is the perfect guest. Let me tell you a little bit about Patrick. He's a business advisor originally from West Africa in Cameroon, uh, has over 10 years experience as a lawyer doing cross-border investment uh, throughout Africa. Currently, he runs an Africa-focused business development and legal advisory consultancy aimed at connecting businesses with strategic partners. And this is my favorite part. He also runs a podcast called Founders Metal, we're gonna get the information from you on that, Patrick, where he interviews inspirational founders of businesses and nonprofits. Uh thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us. I, I'm tempted to do it in Chinese with
2: you. <laughs> Eric, Eric, um let's not um let's not uh Leave out too many of our listeners, Fair but, enough. Uh, thank you so much for <laughs> having me on the show it, and um, it, it's it really a, is an honor
0: we we were pleased to have you here, and the reason why we've invited Patrick is because he in, in addition to having that uh, that wonderful voice is a uh, is a fluent <laughs> Mandarin speaker, and for just full disclosure, uh, I myself have been studying Mandarin since I was fifteen and and just been it's become a life passion of mine uh still do lessons every week, two or three times a week, and so it's just something that becomes this kind of Again, it's an obsession when you kind of pick it up and study it, and and it's a lot of fun. But we're going to talk a little bit about today, Patrick, is the utility of it. And, you know, you decided to study Mandarin. Uh, You have used it in your career. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about what got you interested in studying in the first place. And when you started studying it, I imagine that it was probably pretty unusual at the time.
2: Well, Eric, um, it was, um, but there were a number of um, foreign students uh, also studying Chinese when I when I, I did go there. Um, but uh, I did other things as well as, uh, as, as going to um, a uh, Chinese university for a short-term uh, Chinese course. Um, I also taught English. But I always had the goal in going into China of, of learning Chinese, and that was because I, I just saw that um, uh, you know, the, the relationship between China and many African countries was blooming, and I saw that there were perhaps opportunities there I was also just very, I've always been very interested in the culture and uh, the food, (laughs) of course. And uh, yeah, it it was um, two years of my life, and it was was brilliant. I did succeed in my my ambition there uh, of learning Chinese. Although now, um, one of the reasons perhaps I'm also a bit shy of of speaking with you is is that I I have forgotten quite a number of words, but I still think I'm fluent. But uh, not to your level, I'm sure.
1: And Patrick, uh, you know, kind of in on uh, as a professional, as a, especially as a corporate professional, um, working in an, in the African space on a day-to-day basis, how is Mandarin sure. featuring into your corporate lo- world and your corporate life?
2: Well, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, um, um, it, it features in in terms of uh, at several levels um, for 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 many. Uh, um, students who who study Chinese coming back back to Africa, uh, they get employed by Chinese companies. I didn't do that. I I've been employed by local companies, um, regional, or, although they had regional footprints. So I was in Tanzania for six years or so, and now I've been in South Africa for five. So both law firms that I worked in were were domestic. So although they had. International or at least regional aspirations. So um, that didn't happen. But the second level is definitely interacting with clients. So on that level, I must say that that was very useful. Um, just in, in terms of um, just putting uh, your your whether I mean it's your client or um, y- you know um, the opposing party or the other side's client. Um, just 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 having that. Language connection is, 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 is was was, was is, has been very valuable. How how I've how often I've used it in terms of having actual Chinese counterparts or Chinese clients, it has been a bit disappointing. I did try uh, much harder earlier in my career to to really develop a Chinese practice, but I didn't have control over fees, so I I, I found that it was quite difficult to attract many uh many of our cli- uh, Chinese mm-hmm. clients. Due to working for one of those premium premium law firms, I would say in Tanzania, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's interesting you say you were a little bit disappointed, and I'll just share a little bit of
0: my own experience. You know, I always had this idea that when I was young and I was starting out studying Chinese, that I would just have so many job opportunities that came in in the future. And and when you talk to people about why they want their children to study Chinese, it's to open up professional opportunities for them to have kind of more job prospects, and obviously because China now particularly in Africa, but around the world, is now such a kind of prominent player. And there does seem to be a lot of opportunity. And what I realized over the years was um, there really weren't as many opportunities. I mean, I'm glad that I've done it because I understand the language. I'm passionate about the culture, the history, and all of those things. But I found that the people who are getting better jobs, particularly in China, are not those who speak Chinese, but those who have MBAs, engineering degrees, law degrees, you know, a very special skill. And, and and I never discourage people for wanting to study Chinese, but I kind of question them sometimes on their motivation, which is again, if you want to use this to make money, then you're probably better off going to get an MBA uh, and then working for a Chinese company in Africa or in China. But if you want to kind of combine the really required cultural understanding mixed with the language, mixed with understanding kind of the human aspect of the Chinese, uh, then learning the language is is really important. And so I guess I'm curious about when you talk to young people who about their motivations for learning Chinese, and do they run into the same types of challenges in Africa that you've seen in Cameroon, in South Africa, in Nigeria, and all the places that you've been, where maybe their professional opportunities are limited to just being translators for Chinese companies, but not necessarily executive managers. Or do you, see, do you see a pathway that young people uh, in South Africa or in Africa in general can use Chinese as a way to genuinely advance their career in ways that I wasn't able to?
2: Well, 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 Eric, I think you touched on it yourself in, in saying that technical knowledge is, is, is key in, in terms of um, uh, the skill set that you bring to a particular job. If if you do speak the language, but you can't do the, the, the technical requirements of the job, then that's not very useful for you in advancing your career. So um, what I've seen, um, and I mean, there are, there are many major employers on the African continent now that are Chinese, is that if you have the technical skills, adding Chinese to your quiver is definitely going to help you move past, um, move forward. I mean, I think that is generally applicable for any any sort of international company. I would say that if you're working for Bouygues, the French um, French conglomerate, and you speak French, at, uh, and you, I mean you're good technically, and then you speak French, that really adds to the possibility of you being able to maneuver, understand personalities, make friends, and move forward. And it's no different with uh, with Chinese. I've I've seen. Quite a number of engineers and and and, and 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 business specialists really progress well in Chinese companies um, on the back of, of of that of that marriage of both technical comp- competence and 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 then Chinese language skill. So just 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 it's a it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful combination.
1: So, you know, addressing actually both of you, um, you know, drawing on, on this experience that you need, that, that if you have some kind of technical skill, then Chinese helps. To you know, but but you're not necessarily going to get an amazing job by just having Chinese language ability alone. How do you, the two of you, respond to this controversy in South Africa around the the teaching of Chinese? Do you now feel that that South Africans kind of maybe have a point in the sense that maybe the resources shouldn't be spent on this? Maybe they should rather just plug that resources into math and science education, um, you know, in order to give those those students the skills that will launch them and then some of them will learn Chinese anyway, and then that'll be fine. Or, or am I oversimplifying that?
0: Patrick, you first. Rather, 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 you go, Eric. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, let me let me let me take both sides of that issue, Covis, because on the one hand, I actually do think there's a point that you know more investment in math and science and the kind of core curriculum uh, is critical. But that doesn't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive from learning foreign languages. Because at the end of the day, I agree with Ian Bremmer, who is the kind of well-known president of the Eurasia Foundation who kind of comments on international affairs a lot. And his point is that language is actually not the most important part. It's culture. And culture, understanding people of different cultures is far more important than language. Now, in the case of the Chinese, it's almost impossible, in my opinion— to fully understand the culture without understanding the language. And so we get to this point, Kobus, that you and I have discussed for years on the show about whether or not, you know, Africa and African countries have a China policy. And in order to have a China policy, you have to have people who actually understand China. And in order to people have to understand China, you have to have people who are like Patrick, who have spent time over there, who've, you know, you know, eaten with people, who've talked with people, who've spent time in their homes, who understand their customs, understand their thinking. And China in particular is an extraordinarily complex place. This is not a kind of a place where someone on a two-year rotation in the South African foreign ministry who goes to Beijing, studies for six months, you know, does their 18-month tour after that, and then comes back and is considered an expert. That is naïve. And that's in some ways why I think that some of the deals that the Chinese have made with Africans have ended up in the Chinese favor, in part because the Chinese do a lot more to understand other cultures than those who try to understand the Chinese. So I think there's real value in educating young South African children from a very early you know period in their lives to understand these cultures that they're interacting with, particularly because South Africa is now in many ways financially, in, you know, I want to say you know, interdependent, but that's not even strong enough of a word. They are almost like an umbilical cord now with China in terms of trade and investment. And that dependency, in many ways, is critical for people to understand those cultures. What do you think, Patrick? What's your take?
2: Um, no, I think that um, cultural understanding, as well as um, an appreciation of, 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 of who your counterparts are, it's extremely important, and we need to have more people skilled at that in all, in all professions, across every every aspect and every every sort of industry. Because, as you said, as as we now as we know, um, China Africa trade and China South Africa trade, in particular, since we're referring to that, is 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 just booming. It's number one trade partner, but at the same time, I would say that um, the issue here is a, a matter of priorities. And and I understand where uh, a lot of um, the complaints are coming from. That um, the education system, being what it is, um, at uh, mm-hmm. certain tests showed that um, South African students were last on science and maths scores in uh, a uh, a worldwide ranking of eighth graders. And now you're adding to their burden or to to their. To, to, you're adding another option to them, but we are not solving the the, the problem, which is that um, you know, and, and not enough uh, science and maths graduates are being are being are being sort of uh, taken up through the ranks because um, of this, uh, this 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 problem this this these issues here, and that I understand. But so saying, because there's a problem with science. Despite saying that, because there's a problem with science, math education doesn't mean that um, Chinese uh, language should should be thrown aside. However, um, I suppose it comes into the detail of how much is being spent, whether people's aware whether our resources are being um, diverted. Um, I, I think that um, the Chinese government is doing a lot to help. So in that in that event, in in, in as far as it's almost. Um, cost-free in terms of financial resources for the South African government. Why not? Yeah, However, I, uh, I don't yeah. – Yeah, no,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you. Kobus, I, I guess part of the objection that I have is, is the arguments that Patrick laid out to me are absolutely reasonable, which is at the end of the day it does come down to resources. But there is – the part that offends me is the nativist response, which is we should be learning our own language first – you know and and that's that we hear that in the United States quite a bit, you know English only English first, of course, you should learn your own language first. that goes without saying that should that's part of the the basic curriculum. um but how do you do you feel that those issues are conflating in this debate that people are mixing a legitimate argument about limited resources and focuses first on science, math, you know, and basic you know basic studies, mixed with this nativist, kind of like almost xenophobic type of view, which, as you know, xenophobia does run pretty strong throughout certain sectors of, of South African
1: society yes xenophobia is a problem in South Africa but I don't I, I disagree with you in in you know kind of comparing it to nativist reactions in the us the big difference is that English is not is not under resourced in the us you know kind of like it's it's pretty you know English has a lot of resources and um, and English education is not in danger in the US. South Africa, the problem, and I think this is this is true for across Africa. The problem with with, with African languages is that it was all they were always um, subordinate to English and French and colonial languages. So that's I think is the background where a lot of this resentment comes from. It's it's the, it's it's a it's a different discourse in the sense, or a different conversation, in the sense that it's not you know it's, there isn't a, an, an easy organic kind of overlap between between the local people and their language. You know the way that there is in. in among Anglophone US people in the US, it, it's a situation of, of the majority of the country have never had their language be at the centre, you know, of, of, of the culture or the, the kind of dominant, the, the dominant resource education system it was always it was always um second playing second fiddle to the colonial languages and now there's this fear that it's going to be again so this is where some of the some of the 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 discourse of well we should put you know resources into our own languages that's where that comes from
0: that makes sense um
1: you know, kind of, but, but on in the second point, I'm not sure uh, You know that, that it necessarily then translates into, oh, we can just take those resources and put them into maths and science, because maths and science education takes different resources than language education. It's not necessarily that it's just, you know, it's not just money. It's also teacher talent. It's also different, you know, kind of like different methodologies of teaching and so on. So I don't think it's necessarily apples to apples in, in, in that sense.
0: Uh, Patrick, let's kind of move the conversation beyond South Africa. And I'd like to hear what you've seen and heard from other parts of the continent, say Cameroon or Nigeria in particular, where you've traveled quite a bit. Do you see a similar debate going on between whether it's responsible for school systems to introduce Mandarin into their curriculum?
2: Well, I think that um, there, I think perhaps because of the distance um, from that colonial history that that you see in other African countries. They have been independent for much longer than South Africa, for example. That nativist feeling perhaps is a bit weaker, and pragmatic um, business thinking you know, takes over in the sense that um, the job opportunities it will give um, students, potential job opportunities it would open to students, um, um, and other consider you know other thoughts like that are are, are in the front forefront rather. So. Um, I know that Confucius Institutes are, are, are spread out across across the, the continent. There weren't any in Tanzania until this year, I believe, or recently. Um, as I left the left there, um, I'd wondered why, but um, um, I mean, finally, pragmatism has 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 won over. There are Confucius Institutes in Kenya, Nigeria, Cameroon, and and really, there's a there's there's a huge appetite for Chinese language courses. At all levels. I mean, I know that many uh, well-off or well-to-do middle-class uh, families are actually hiring Chinese nannies to, uh, to to raise to help sort of you know help kids at a very early age. You know, when when apparently language learning is easier, to help kids um, help their kids um, actually get a um, a. Um, an advantage there in yeah. terms of learning Chinese. You know? It's interesting because in
0: my son, my son is seven years old and in his, you know, you know, international school here in Ho Chi Minh city, um, all of the major international schools here start, require Mandarin uh, education at fourth <coughs> grade. So from fourth grade, it's compulsory. And, uh, and that's just, obviously we live in this part of the world here in Asia. We're, we're bordering China, so it makes sense. But I think there's a certain class question here. in Kobus, we talked about this earlier before the show that in the United States, You know, kind of affluent white families in Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco are doing everything they can to get their kids into bilingual schools, to have Chinese nannies, to kind of put their preschoolers into Mandarin language education. And so there's this weird kind of bifurcation that on, you know, and again, maybe it's a resource thing, a worldview thing, but certainly at the elite, there is no kind of you know, question that Mandarin is is something they should do. Again, I I question their motivations and intentions for it. If it's just to make money, it's really not gonna be a a really good thing. Do you see that in South Africa as well, where elite are, are 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 kind of pushing this? And again, this is a question of kind of public education, whereas the kind of private school education, they don't face the same debates?
1: Yes the elites um tend to do a very similar you know have a similar kind of um, tactics some friends of mine are considering actually putting their kids into um, into the chinese school uh like enrolling them in the chinese school in south africa which is essentially like for for the uh for the chinese community in 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 gauteng the the province where johannesburg is um and you there's similar kind of trends towards towards Chinese language in preschools and so on, all in the pr- in private schools. You know, all in, in quite pricey, elite kind of schools. The, that kind of language education is becoming very um, very desirable for everyone. Um, so it is a it is this kind of interesting situation where where you know, kind of working class people are protesting against, uh, have been quite forced, you know, to to learn Chinese while the elite is like, a, you know, kind of running as fast as they can to try and get their hands on that same opportunity. Um, now. Just to to you know, kind of um, to to shift the conversation slightly, um, both of you learn Chinese in China. Um, so, you know, kind of starting with Patrick, like for both of you, how like people who are listening and who want to up their Chinese levels, but who can't go to China immediately, well, how should they? What should they do to learn Chinese outside of China? And you know, kind of in order to perhaps go to China at some stage,
2: in terms of Things to do, um, definitely, it's around learning a language for me, it's always been around, um, exposing myself and practicing it and making it, making a deep dive into it. Um, but then how? Uh, how do you even start? Um, <clears throat> I was very lucky to study it in China. Um, I was given a opinion, um, a handbook given to kids as a starter. And let, me I just, uh, we, with, let me just
0: interrupt you there. Pinyin, for everybody who's not familiar with it, is the kind of alphabetized pronunciation
2: system for Chinese. Continue, Patrick. Absolutely, and 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 then um, and then it gives you the the combination in 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 Latin script, which is basically A B C D, and and it gives you the spelling of the major uh, language combinations in in Chinese and how to pronounce them um and the tones now i went through that with a native chinese speaker and that was the foundation i think that allowed me to really um have a a a good pronunciation, well okay pronunciation at least uh, in chinese now um after that uh, so i would advise um anyone really to to really try and get their hands on such a book If they do not have access to an institution that provides a course, and nowadays that's relatively rare because Confucius Institutes and Chinese teaching institutes are are, are all over the all over. However, if you want to self to to learn it yourself, which I initially did, by the way, I did not go to the South and the Chinese university for the short course I did until um, sort of the end of my two years in China. Then I would suggest that they do what I did, which is get um, a native speaker to basically go run them through the pronunciation of the language, and then um, and then and then uh, from there try and practice it and use um, phrase books to, to practice dialogue. So that helped me um, be able to 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 go around and and order from restaurants and not starve to death. I was in a small town where nobody spoke English. So, you know, I needed to quickly learn how to, 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 to order count uh, in Chinese and count in Chinese. And then from there, um, it really depends on how far you want to take it. Um, Phrase books can be very useful um, around normal situations, uh, such as going to restaurants, um, bargaining, buying things in markets. And then if you actually then want to learn the script, then i would say that um you have no other choice but to really go for a a sort of short course um somewhere at perhaps at a confucius institute of which there are many i think or eric you know more about this yeah. than, than i do um and then and then and really and really um, <coughs> put in a lot of effort to to actually remember all of these symbols but, um, but 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 um, but it just takes a lot of time, and I think uh, uh, working vocabulary around three thousand um, characters is what you would need to be able to to say you're fluent. Um, <clears throat> so that 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 would be the three stage process, I would say. So from beginner's level of mastery of the pronunciation to um, conversational, uh, um, I would say ease or conversational in terms of being able to, to speak with people and, and, and go go and order food in Chinese restaurants, speak to Chinese people around or buy things from a Chinese shop. These are all things you should do and and at the end of the day, what will help you is speaking, listening, reading, and just exposing yourself thoroughly to the to the language. and that's what helped me.
0: Yeah, so I'll, know, I'll, I'll echo a lot of what you've said. Um, let's start at the at the very beginning which is that studying Chinese is, is not like studying other languages where you put two or three years into it and you can become kind of conversational. Um, this is a really big commitment that you're making. Um, it's, in my view, it's, it's really a lifelong undertaking. If you are not going to commit several years, and if not an indefinite period of your life to study Chinese. Um, really, I mean, I'm not joking, and because it, is, it takes that amount of time to memorize the characters, to understand the subtleties, um, and I'm not trying to scare or intimidate anybody, but this is not a one- or two-year type of kind of night course type of project that you can, you can take. So I started studying in the United States in high school, and I really encourage people when they start studying Chinese to do everything they can, if possible, to do it in a group setting. It is so much better to learn with other people and to get that encouragement because it can be very frustrating. And if you're doing it by yourself, either from things that you download off the internet or maybe with a teacher online and you're just doing one-on-one, it's very difficult to get that feeling of support because it's a long, 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 you know, slow grinding road. (laughs) And so then uh, I did, I started in high school with, a class. I then moved to China for, for quite some time. I st- went to Taiwan to study intensively in Taiwan and then moved to China and whatnot. Obviously, very few people can do that. So, what I would recommend is to again pick up on what Patrick was saying is to find a Confucius Institute, which is the Chinese government kind of sponsored culture and language institutes, much like the Alliance Francaise, the American centers. Um, the, the, you know, the, the British have their own equivalent where they teach language and they teach culture, uh, if that's possible. Right. Also, what I noticed in Kinshasa and in Cairo which was very interesting the last time I was there, where there were signs up in the Chinese community for tutors. And the Chinese community, and there's now a Chinese community in almost every major African city. So there are groups and tutors that you can find uh, that are there. And the way that I am doing it now, so the way I've been able to keep up my Chinese, even though I don't live in China anymore and I don't really travel there that much, I try to go once a year, but just for a short period of time. So I'm not keeping up my Chinese by actually being in China. Um, I have my teacher on Skype. So my teacher lives in Xi'an. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from six to seven in the morning, I do. I have a class. I have a, and together we post on Weibo. So I have a Weibo account for anybody who is uh, who's Chinese speaking. It's Da uh, Big Nose Foreigner. And so you can find me on uh Weibo, Weibo.com slash Dabizalawai. And you can see all my uh my posts that I put up from from Ho Chi Minh City and my family and all these things, and I've got about nine hundred followers. And that's my Chinese lesson every every you know, every three times a week. So it's a great way to practice reading, it's a great way to practice writing, talking, interacting with social culture and social media culture. Um, but really again I go back to my base point here, which is it is a, it's a big commitment to, to learn Chinese and this is why in my experience 99% of the people quit. Very few people continue on, uh, you know, and it's just because it requires a certain amount of dedication in Cobus, when you get busy with jobs and family and moving around. You know, Chinese is one of the things that sounded like a good idea when I started it a couple years ago, but now I don't have time. Forget it. And which is one of the reasons why Skype and online learning, as you get to a more advanced stage of your language education, is actually very convenient. Because no matter where you kind of go, you're always being able to access uh, your teacher and your, your online classes and whatnot. So that's our... That's our tips for this. Uh, you know, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on the program to talk about this fascinating topic and one that I'm sure we'll revisit again in the future. At the very beginning in the introduction, uh, I mentioned that you are a podcaster and uh, that you, you kind of do a podcast about kind of business and, in, you know, and, and leadership. Can you tell us a little, little bit about your show and kind of
2: where everybody can find it? Sure. Sure, Eric. Um, my, my show is, um, as you mentioned, Founders Metal. And it's something that I'm passionate about. So I'm listening to the stories of those who, like yourself, were were brave enough to set up a whether it's a business initiative or podcast around something they were passionate about or or just a, a need that they saw. And um, I believe that um, many people are hungry for inspirational stories like that. So I thought, to why not not just speak to people but have this podcast to share these stories with others like myself who really enjoy and, and, and get inspired by hearing the stories of people who, you know, went out there and started something. So um, I was inspired by people like uh, John Lee Dumas. I don't know why he pronounces his name that way. It's Dumas in French, I think, which it was originally from. But but anyway, he's American fully now, so he pronounces Dumas. And um, I just wanted to hear people I could... Um, I, could, I, I also wanted to hear more stories from people in Africa because um, that's where I'm based. And that's why I started the podcast. And it's um, foundersmetal.com. The site is not live yet, but I will launch it shortly. And um, I plan on releasing a show
0: um, weekly. Fantastic. And people will be able to find it on the iTunes store and all the usual places where they go for podcasts? I-
2: Absolutely, Stitcher and
0: iTunes. You know, Cobus uh, Patrick's a man after my own heart. He is, you know, a Chinese speaker who does podcasting as a passion. I mean, that is doesn't get much closer to this. And and Cobus, by the way, when are we going to get you uh, speaking Chinese one of these days?
1: I have studied Chinese actually a little bit, but my Chinese is terrible, and I, I I had the the kind of You know, I I speak... uh, Japanese is my third language. You know, I I grew up speaking Afrikaans and obviously I speak English and I I, I learned Japanese for years in, in, in Japan. And I have a kind of a new language hump to overcome where I, you know, kind of, which was a big problem when I was learning Chinese, where I, I understand the question I'm asked but then the only language that comes out is Japanese. Um, so that is that is where I am, that I, that I need to kind of overcome once I'm over that hump.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, listen, uh, it'll be our goal in the next 10 years to get Kobus to speak uh, a little bit more of Chinese, but uh, Patrick, again, thank you so much for joining us. For Kobus van I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. We'll We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. If you enjoyed the show, you should definitely head over to the China Africa Project's website at www.chinaafricaproject.com. Sign up for a weekly email newsletter full of the week's top China-Africa headlines, along with context. And for up-to-the-minute developments, come to facebook.com slash China-Africa Project, where stories are updated every four hours. The China-Africa Project sends a big thanks to publishing partners at the Huffington Post, the Asia Society's China File website, Pulse Ghana, Pulse Nigeria, and Yes Africa.